Welcome to the second season of Reset the Table. Russia's war in Ukraine affects agricultural markets and threatens food security for millions around the world. The UN Food System Summit is behind us, and COP27 and the White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition, and Health are upon us. Join us as we examine solutions to food insecurity challenges around the world and right here at home. Hello and welcome to the show. My guest today is Stefan Schmitz, Executive Director of the Global Crop Diversity Trust. Stefan has held many positions within the German government, in the OECD, and as chair of the steering committee of the Global Agriculture and Food Security Program, or GASPI. But our conversation today will focus on Stefan's leadership of the Crop Trust. I've had the pleasure of knowing Stefan for the better part of a decade, so Stefan, it's really a pleasure to welcome you to our show. Thank you very much. Pleasure on my side. Yeah, absolutely. Let's start there then. Let's start with what you're emphasizing, which is the importance of biodiversity, and also what you see as threats to biodiversity as we're looking at food security and nutrition around the world. Could you address those two things? Pleasure, yes. Well, crop diversity is an important part of general biodiversity on Earth. It is the raw material for the development of new, improved crop varieties. Until about 12,000 years ago, people all over the world were hunters and gatherers. At that point, they began to settle down and practice agriculture. Since then, they have made use of nature's diversity. For example, they bred the first crops from the wild archetypes of wheat, maize, and potatoes. In the course of time, more and more domesticated crop varieties could be crossed with each other, or domesticated varieties were crossed with their wild relatives. Very important was the fact that people often left their homes and looked for new places to live. When they did so, they took their cultivated seeds with them. This led, over the years, to a constant mixing of genetic traits across the globe. The result was a diversity in which the variety that developed in each place in the world were those that suited the natural conditions there. For example, soil conditions, temperature, and precipitation during the and this diversity also made it possible for crops to win the constant race against new pests and diseases. What's more, the incipient agriculture was able to adapt to slow natural climate fluctuations over the course of millennia and centuries. And this was mainly because the farmers were able to draw on the existing and ever-growing diversity. Stefan, if you don't mind, can you perhaps quantify for us the effects of climate change on biodiversity in recent years? Well, there, there is effect of climate change on biodiversity. It adds to the ongoing threat to biodiversity. But it is, I would like to see it more the other way around, that we need the diversity that is still available to be able to breed new varieties that will be more resistant to new environmental conditions, to higher temperatures, to longer droughts. New pests and diseases are most likely to come with it. Therefore, 
We need this variety. Yeah. And this variety is challenged. It's under threat all over the world for many different reasons. Mm -hmm. What you're explaining to us, these threats to biodiversity and the necessity of biodiversity to continue to adapt to climate change are part of the reason that the Global Crop Diversity Trust was founded. Perhaps that's the main reason this is founded. The Crop Trust has not been with us for very long, less than 20 years. It was established in 2004. Can you tell us a little bit about the genesis of the Crop Trust? Yeah, well, by the turn of the millennium, at the latest, there was a growing awareness that the diversity of our crops around the world is crucial for the survival of mankind and for global food security, as we just discussed. There are hundreds of thousands of different species and varieties of crops, ancient land races, modern cultivars, neglected and underutilized crops. However, the growing importance of this diversity is matched by its growing. In 2001, the International Treaty on Plant Genetic Resources for Food and Agriculture was adopted by the members of the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN, in Rome, and it enters into force in 2004. This plant treaty, for short, is an extremely important multilateral agreement and provides the international framework for, among other things, the protection and conservation of crop diversity and the unhindered free exchange of seeds. This major political breakthrough in 2004 paved the way for the establishment of the Global Crop Diversity Trust or Crop Trust for sure. This was launched in October 2004 when seven countries signed a founding agreement for the Crop Trust as an independent organization under international law. Initially based at the FAO premises in Rome, it moved to Bonn in Germany in 2012, following an offer by the German government to relocate the organization. In a nutshell, the Crop Trust is the funding mechanism of the Plant Treaty for seed conservation in gene banks. The US and Germany are the largest contributors to the endowment fund of the Crop Trust, from which we generate the income to provide support to gene banks around the world. But Norway, for example, Australia, United Kingdom, Sweden, and Switzerland are important partners as well. Thank you for that. Your website says it is only through conserving and using crop diversity to adapt agriculture to the effects of climate change that we will meet one of humanity's greatest challenges sustainably producing sufficient and sufficiently nutritious food for an increasing global population in the face of multiple crises. There's a lot that's contained there. What I would like to ask you is, how does the Crop Trust achieve these goals? Well, we want to contribute to these goals, and we are convinced that we can add to it. As I said before, there is no magic bullet to this. Food security is a complex global challenge. It goes beyond just securing food production in the context of global change and especially climate change, as we already said. It is also about overcoming rural poverty and lack of prospects for millions and millions of small farmers in the global south. It's about reducing food losses and waste, reducing hunger, reducing unhealthy nutrition, which you find everywhere. And it's about securing food protection within planetary boundaries. So in addition to adapt 
adaptation to climate change and control of pests and diseases. It's about yield increase, quality improvement, preservation of cultural identity, not to forget about. So while diversity is not a magic bullet, it is a necessary condition for food systems. Just for clarification then, Stefan, the Crop Trust itself, does a Crop Trust do activities to increase yields, to preserve livelihoods, etc.? Or is the Crop Trust's main purpose to preserve seeds, to preserve biodiversity? It is, on the one hand, it is mainly, and that's our core mandate and core work, the preservation, the conservation of that. But at the same time, we make sure that these resources in gene banks are made available for use by scientists, by breeders, and by farmers themselves. So while we do not directly fund breeding programs, for example, we make sure, for example, through our work on international information system, knowledge sharing, capacity development, that there is a direct link between the gene banks where the genetic material is conserved and the usage on the ground in the field in the farm so that we make it as close to breeding and farmers as possible. Great. Thank you for clarifying that. Crop Trust certainly is involved, as you explained, with knowledge sharing, capacity building to make sure that the biodiversity that's preserved in the gene banks is utilized in the field. Let's turn to the gene banks themselves. And I'd like to start our conversation with what is perhaps the crown jewel of the gene banks, definitely the one that's the best known, the Global Seed Vault in Svalbard, Norway. Can you tell us a bit about this seed vault? The Svalbard Global Seed Vault is a gene bank of a special kind. It is not just the crown jewel, it has a special position within the overarching system of what we call the global system of gene banks. It is a global seed repository on Spitsbergen, the largest island on the Svalbard archipelago belonging to Norway in the Arctic Ocean, about halfway between mainland Norway and the North Pole. The seed vault opened in February 2008 and is about to celebrate the 15th anniversary. Svalbard was chosen for several reasons. Its cold climate and permafrost make the area a perfect location for underground cold storage. The surrounding sandstone is stable for building and is low in radiation. In terms of security, Svalbard scores high marks compared to the locations of many other gene banks. The seed wall is located Extraordinary 120 meters into the rock, ensuring that the seed rooms will remain naturally frozen even in the event of failure of the mechanical cooling system and rising external air temperatures due to climate change. So I did read that the location in Svalbard is accessible through the commercial flight that flies furthest north around the world. So it's on the one hand, it's still accessible. On the other hand, it's remote enough, located very far north, you said halfway between the mainland Norway and, and, and the North Pole. Also, in terms of when you see a, a picture of the seed vault, you can see the entrance of it, but the vast majority of it is actually located inside the rock. Can you tell us just a little bit more, how does this protect the seed vault from the effects, not just of a power failure, but of climate change itself? Are the seeds in the vault potentially in danger from a warming climate? In, in theory, 
you could construct such a seat vault in Abu Dhabi and places like that very hot. That's theoretically doable. And you could, if you invest a lot of money and energy into the system, you can make sure that even in Abu Dhabi, you can keep this as minus 18 degrees, which is necessary to, to make sure that these seeds keep their viability over a very long time. The problem with a seed vault in Abu Dhabi would be in a case of failure of the pooling system, it would warm up incredibly fast. And so there is an immediate risk of destruction of a deterioration of the quality of the seeds. In Svalbard, in the inner chamber of the mountain, it is there is minus 10 degrees surrounding ambient temperature. You only need to cool it down a further 8 degrees to bring it to mm. minus 80, which makes it more efficient, yeah, more cost efficient to cool it down. But far more important to this, in case of failure of the cooling system, it mm. takes a very, very, very long time to get it up to a temperature where it is critical for the seeds. even under the worst conditions of climate change, it would take many, many years to bring the inner chambers of the vault to a temperature that is critical for the seeds. And so there will be time enough to get the cooling system fixed and keep it at the temperature needed. Great. Thank you. And hopefully we will never have to do that. But no. Thank you. Thanks for explaining that. I understand that you had the privilege of visiting Svalbard yourself recently. I'd love if you could explain for our audience what that was like. It is always uh, an experience. It is. Uh, it comes along with, with my job. About once a year, I travel there. I'm then with delegations who bring up new duplicates from their gene banks, which are around the world. They duplicate their material and send these duplicates up to Svalbard. And that is a usually a, a nice, interesting and politically appealing event. And I'm always happy to be with that. It's a very interesting place. It, it's, it's absolutely in the middle. It is in the middle of nowhere. And while, I mean, you can reach it by daily flights going up, you need to go out another few kilometers into the wild, out of the main city on, of Longyearbyen on Svalbard to come to the vault. And it's really a secluded place, like a place from another planet. Well, actually, interesting you said that because my analogy for what I envision inside of the seed vault would be like going to in a spaceship or something. Yes. What is it like when you walk in? Is it very cold? Is it dark? Is it bright? Is it what? It, can you explain that to us? Usually it is uh, outside and it's cold. And what adds to the to the temperature is is often the strong wind. So you really need to be well prepared and have uh, proper clothes. And then when you go into the world, which is usually not, not allowed on a regular basis, as I'm a member of the International Advisory Committee, I'm able to go into the chambers once a year for inspection. It, it's then getting colder or it stays as cold as outside. It, it's minus, uh, minus 18 degrees. It's like in a cold house. Admittedly, after being there for half an hour, 
I realized how strenuous it is to stand this cold. Yeah. So it sounds like it's wa like walking into a massive freezer full of seeds that help preserve the world's biodiversity. Exactly. A massive freezer, a massive freezer at minus 18, 18 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> For up to 4.5 million seed samples, represents a groundbreaking international project that was awarded many, many prizes and so for that. That was initiated largely and with great commitment by the Norwegian government and is now being implemented in close cooperation between the Norwegians, the Nordic Jetic Renault Center, supported by the Nordic Council of Ministers and the Crop Trust. So we are, the Crop Trust is a member of a tripartite partnership operating uh, operating the crop trust. Great. And you said there's space for 4.5 million seeds. Is that right? Um, and how many does this, does the vault currently house? Currently, currently about 1.1 million. So there are three big freezing rooms inside the mountains. And one of them, one of the three is now almost completely filled. Almost one third is full, so but there is enough room for another at least three million accessions or seed samples, as we say. And so that makes then up to 4.5 million. Okay. So now you mentioned that the seeds that the Svalbard receives are from gene banks around the world. We talked about Svalbard and thank you for describing your experience there to us. It sounds like a fascinating place, <laughs> place to visit. How does that relate to other gene banks around the world? How many are there? Where are they, et cetera? To make the difference clear, I, I should start with one very important point. While all other gene banks around the world are actually always directly linked to research and breeding institutions that multiply and use the stored material for their own purposes, this Svalbard Global Seed Wall serves exclusively for the safekeeping of previously duplicated seeds. So mm. you, once it is sent there, it can stay there for 10, 20 or 30 years before the scientists down in the original seed banks realize that at home, the seeds lose their viability. And at that point, then they will hmm. call the duplicates back and replace it by refreshed new duplicates. So that is simply a safekeeping place, like in a bank safe, for example. Yeah, it re institutions, national gene banks, uh, and international gene banks around the globe send it there, and it remains to be their uh, property there. They are closed. The boxes mm -hmm. are closed, they are sealed, and nobody else has access to it. Can you give us an example then? Let's choose another seed bank somewhere in the world that might have sent its seeds up to Svalbard and then would have needed to extract its seeds for use back in the original location. Can you give us an example of where that might have happened? Perhaps I take uh, one very prominent example that at the same time demonstrate that the concept of this seed vaults is really working, is practical. This concept has already proven its full effectiveness when, for example, the International Center for Agricultural Research in the Dry Areas, the so-called ICADA Institute, had to move its headquarters from Aleppo in Syria to mm. uh, Beirut in Lebanon 
in the turmoil of the Syrian civil war. It was able to draw on the backup copies already in Svalbard and rebuild its gene banks at new locations in Morocco. So the gene bank manager in Aleppo had been wise enough before the civil war to duplicate the entire collection, very important collection, mm -hmm. duplicate everything and send the duplicates to Svalbard. During the Civil War in 2015, the entire compound of Ikara in Aleppo was destroyed with the entire, with the entire collection. And so they could then bring the seeds from Svalbard back um, to the new places of Ikara in, in, in Lebanon. And that's fascinating. And that's a really interesting example to hear about. So it sounds like one of the main purposes of the seed vault in Svalbard is, as we've been talking about, to replace seeds that might be needed in particular regions around the world. I also wonder, is a purpose of Svalbard to preserve seeds in perpetuity so that a thousand years from now, we still have seeds for, you, you name the crop. Is, is that a purpose of Svalbard as well? That is the purpose of Svalbard, uh, to keep it in perpetuity as mankind, as long as we need to eat, we will need seeds. And these seeds need to be adapted uh, to changing circumstances. And we will always need these repositories. It is in perpetuity. And therefore, our philosophy as a crop trust is to provide funding in perpetuity. And therefore, we, we are, our work is based on this endowment fund. We are mm -hmm. not dependent on annual replenishment or whatever. So with a growing endowment fund, we are able to generate income in perpetuity and by this providing support to those gene banks, in particular in the global south, who are not able to fund themselves uh, fully. Sure. Yeah. And we mainly focus on the basics, the essential operations of the gene banks, as had, as had before. Thank you. Thank you for that. You mentioned the seed vault that had been in Syria that's now been rebuilt, uh, reconstructed. Did you say that it's in both Lebanon and Morocco or just in Morocco? On, on both locations. Yeah. yeah. Okay, great. Where else are there gene banks around the world, apart from Norway and then these two countries? Everywhere. There are about 1,750 registered gene banks. You can find it on a website of the FAO. 130 of them have housed more than 10,000 samples or specimens. These are so about a bit more than 100 are very important. And almost every country has its own national gene bank. In the U.S., it's for Collins. In, in Colorado, for example, Germany has, has a big one. The mother of all gene banks is in uh, St. Petersburg, founded 100 years ago by Nikolai Vavilov. That's a, a separate story on mm -hmm. its own. <laughs> but we cannot go into detail there. So, And with 18 of these gene banks have an international status, given by the FAO, 11 of them under the umbrella of the so-called CGIR, 
the global uh, agricultural research system. Great. Do you happen to have a list of those, of these 11? And if you don't, that's okay. But do you, do you know where these 11 are? For example. The most important one is the CIMIT, the Maize and Rice Improvement uh, Center in Mexico, which is, a, is an important one. Mm-hmm. The International Rice Research Institute on the Philippines. So these CGIAR institutions are also serving as gene banks. They host their own um, okay. Yeah. Can you give me an example of some other ones that are not part of the CGIAR system? So like, let's say in a country such as Brazil that produces a vast amount of agricultural product, is there a gene bank there? Brazil has its own national gene bank as in the US, national and other uh, mm-hmm. and, and many other countries of the global south have their national gene banks. And there are some other international gene banks, for example, uh, there is one in, in Costa Rica, one in the, in the South uh, Pacific, in Cote d'Ivoire and other places, often specialized on, on regional crops, but uh, important, uh, importance beyond uh, simply the local market. Great. So you said there's, there are 18 that have an international status given by the FAO, the, the ones you mentioned are probably among those 18. But I'm shocked to hear that there are over 750 registered gene banks around the world. One thing that's been in the news, unfortunately, and as a casualty of Russia's war in Ukraine, is an attack in Kharkiv in May 2022 on a gene bank in Ukraine. Can you explain to us what happened there? Yeah. I mean, so contrary to what some media reported, the attack was not on the Ukrainian national gene bank directly in Kharkiv, but on an agricultural research station near that city. Fortunately, I have to say, the damage was limited. We can assume that there was no irreversible loss of plant genetic resources. However, this does not change the fact that gene banks are fundamentally vulnerable to natural uh, disasters or to warfare, as in the case of Aleppo in, in Syria, which I already mentioned. That is why we as a crop trust keep appealing to gene banks around the world to duplicate their treasures mm. and to deposit and the backup copies in a separate place. Crop trust provide financial supports to many gene banks that cannot do this on their own. That's quite interesting. So I would think from the outside that every gene bank would have an interest in duplicating its seeds and depositing them in Svalbard, but it sounds like it takes some incentive on the part of the crop trust and funding as well. That is a question of awareness raising. And that is also, in some cases, more a question of financial resources. And in these cases, we now uh, started a broader campaign together uh, with the Norwegian government, a project-based thing, to really incentivize duplication of, of seeds and send them to, uh, to Svalbard. Good. Thank you. Thanks for clarifying that. I'd like to come back to Russia's war in Ukraine and its effect on global food security. You could comment on this and the relationship of what you're doing with a crop trust to what we're experiencing right now, the disruptions to global food security and nutrition that works in the midst of right now. This war in Ukraine made very, very clear how vulnerable the global food system is. It, it was vulnerable even before the war. And food prices have been on the rise even before the war. And now 
it is accelerated, it's amplified by the war. Yeah, and now it's a, the problem for many countries, in particular in Africa, that they are so highly dependent on food imports. And as we here are sitting in Europe, we now all try very hard to make ourselves more independent from energy imports. Mm. We now realize it. That's exactly the same for many African countries. They realize that they need, they should become more independent of food imports. And that is the case from our point of view where diversity comes into play to really to, to build productive, efficient, sustainable national agriculture. Um, you need crops, you need seeds that are adapted to local circumstances. And therefore, you need to draw on the diversity that is, uh, that is available. Thank you. Thank you for drawing those links. Certainly, it's not the case that countries that are relying on imports to meet their food security would get to the point where they no longer need imports. I think that that, that, that would be an unrealistic goal for many Absolutely. countries that are experiencing food insecurity right now just because of their access to water or their, you know, their climate or you know, what have you. Nonetheless, what you pointed out is that it, it is important to boost agricultural productivity to perhaps replace some imports with domestic production. And thanks for pointing out the importance of access to appropriate seeds for doing that. Absolutely. Uh, as you say, countries like Egypt or, um, or, uh, or Singapore, they always will be dependent on food imports. But mm -hmm. there are many countries around the world that could do more. And as long food prices have been low on international markets, there was not enough incentive to build its own national agriculture. Yeah. Investment in agriculture is always, you have, you, you're not having quick wins in agriculture. You invest now and you see the benefits uh, 10 years along the road. That's a problem with that. Many, many countries and the global community needs to realize that we need to rethink globalization of food systems or food value change. We always will have global markets and it is absolutely necessary to have open borders with that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But every country should be able to do its utmost to diversify and have a productive agriculture. It's not for the benefit of you know, trade balance. It is also for empower local farmers, provide opportunities for smallholders reduce carbon footprints and, and all the like. Thank you for bringing some color into that issue, which sometimes can get spoken of in very absolute terms. I'd like to bring our conversation back to the point where you and I first started working together. This was in 2015 when Germany last hosted the G7. Stefan, you, you were the German lead of the G7 Food Security Working Group at that time. I was representing the United States in the G7 Food Security Working Group. Fast forward to 2022, Germany again, is hosting the G7 this year. Yeah. In your view of the G7, also the G20, have these multilateral fora paid appropriate attention to the work that you're describing, to the work of the Crop Trust? Yes, well, we, we are not living in a perfect world, but, but even then I would say the G7 has once again demonstrated global leadership 
on the issue of food security. At this year's meeting of G7 development ministers in Berlin, food security was even at the top of the agenda. A global alliance for food security was established, which I very much welcome. There are few areas of life where international cooperation is as important as in food security and at the same time so feasible. While on the one hand, the G7 strengthened immediate effective food emergency aid, its decision never more clearly expressed that real transformations of food systems require structural change, structural measures, which of course are only effective in the long term, as I said. This is exactly the path that needs to be taken. And if the G7 appears here as a driving force for a global change, I think that is very much appreciated. Absolutely. And hopefully going forward, we will see direct references to the Global Crop Diversity Trust in G7 and G20 outcome documents. Yeah. One final for you, Stefan. I noticed on the Crop Trust website a very important piece of information, which is that your favorite crop is tomato. <laughs> Can you tell us, is there a particular variety that you're, <laughs> that you're fond of? Oh, honestly, I'm just experimenting with uh, growing my own tomatoes. Andre, I, I just entered into gardening this year, started with tomatoes, and I'm still learning the various names, but I can tell you all the about six, seven, eight different varieties all taste better than the one I get from the supermarket. <laughs> and that is absolutely encouraging. I will continue to do this by try and error and learn from the mistakes I made this year and hopefully come up with even better results, results, <laughs> better results well, next year. <laughs> that says a lot because for my travels in Germany for your G7, I recall Germany has very delicious fresh fruits and vegetables. So if you're making more delicious tomatoes, yeah. then that's very impressive. <laughs> come around for a tomato tasting next time. <laughs> well, thank you. I might take you up on that invitation. So kudos on that accomplishment. But Stefan, thank you so much for your leadership of the Global Crop Diversity Trust. We look forward to staying in touch with you and to hearing about the continued progress of this incredibly important global initiative. So thank you, Stefan. Thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to share my views with, with you here Great. at this spot. Thank you very much. That's it for today's episode of Reset the Table. You can subscribe on Apple or Spotify and follow us on Twitter at CSIS Food. Until next time. <laughs>